Well, here's what we're going to do this morning, adults, is as we begin this time, I'd like to have you listen to a Breakpoint that was on this week by Eric Metaxas, and he was talking about North Korean Christians. So we're going to listen to his broadcast at this time, again, from Eric Metaxas, it's from Breakpoint, and listen to this particular if you want to call it a podcast or whatever, but it does a great job of setting the stage for today's scripture passage. All right? So let's listen to this from Breakpoint, and then we'll go into our scripture passage. If you think North Korea's dictators are bad for the world, just imagine what it's like to be a Christian there. Stay tuned to Breakpoint. From the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, here's Eric Metaxas with Breakpoint. Anyone who knows anything about world missions and the global church knows about the Christians of South Korea. According to the Operation World Prayer Guide, from the first Protestant church planted in 1884, South Korea now has possibly 50,000 Protestant congregations and 15 million Christians of all kinds. It's also a missionary powerhouse currently sending more than 21,000 missionaries to about 175 countries. Amazing. But the Christians of North Korea, they're virtually invisible, though of course not in the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Operation World says that although no one really knows their true number, there could be as many as 350,000 underground Christians living in the slave state of 24 million people. When you consider that the government there, whether run by the Japanese occupiers during World War II or the current cult-like totalitarian leadership, has been trying to stamp out all vestiges of Christianity for about 70 years, that's also amazing. Tragically and infuriatingly, up to 100,000 of these brothers and sisters in Christ are locked up in harsh prisons or work camps. Where did they all come from and how do they survive? Well, in answer to the first part, it's a fascinating story. Did you know that from the late 19th century until 1942, Pyongyang, North Korea's Orwellian capital city today, was known as the Jerusalem of the East. According to Providence Journal, a Presbyterian medical doctor named Horace Allen became physician to the king of Korea and received royal permission to proselytize after saving the life of a royal family member severely wounded during an attempted coup. Presbyterian and Methodist missionaries from the United States followed, and along with Catholic and other Protestant missionaries from other countries, they found Koreans to be receptive to their message in large numbers. A quarter of a century later, in 1910, Korean Christians numbered over 200,000, two-thirds of them Presbyterians and Methodists, in a country of approximately 13 million people. If the city of Seoul was receptive to the gospel, and it was, Pyongyang was even more so. Following a series of revivals in and around the Jerusalem of the East, by 1910 the region was the most heavily Christian in all of Korea. Of course, most of us know what happened next. After World War II, the communist regime of Kim Il-sung attempted to stamp out all foreign religions, especially Christianity, which was branded a tool of Western imperialism. Missionaries were thrown out, churches closed, and many Christians executed for their faith, with many more pouring into democratic South Korea at the end of the Korean War. So, how do those who remain survive? As with all of us, by God's grace. Today, Open Doors USA reports North Korea is the most oppressive place in the world for Christians. Due to ever-present surveillance, the agency says many pray with eyes open and gathering for praise or fellowship is practically impossible. Worship of the ruling Kim family is mandated for all citizens and those who don't comply, including Christians, are arrested, imprisoned, tortured, 
or killed. Entire Christian families are imprisoned in hard labor camps. It's no wonder that one North Korean Christian lady who escaped continues to pray a simple prayer she learned from her mother, Lord, Lord, please help. And the Lord, through agencies such as Open Doors, is answering that prayer, providing Bibles and emergency relief inside the country as well as to the fleeing North Korean Christians. They're not invisible to him, and now, I hope, not to us either. For Breakpoint, this is Eric Metaxas. So with Breakpoint as your backdrop, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4 and take a look at verses 12 to the end of the chapter 12 through 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. There is a popular theology, which is espoused by some, which suggests this. It suggests that the sun always shines upon Christians, that our grass is always green, and that the spiritual temperature around us is always ideal. What we have discovered as we engage in this endeavor called life Difficulty comes. Suffering is experienced. Hardship does not evade us. Suffering and difficulty is one of those tools, however, that God uses in each of our lives. We would rather not suffer. We would rather not experience difficulty. But the truth of the matter is, God uses difficulty. He uses hardship to bring strength to our lives. Is he suffering in hardship are the winds of Kansas that send our roots deep. At this time, I invite you to take your bulletins and follow along with me. We want to look at ten things that result because of hardship or suffering. Ten things that God does through this painful tool called suffering and hardship. 
So let's look at them at this, at this time. Number one, God uses pain and suffering to develop perseverance. It's your suffering, it's your difficulty that compels you to persevere in your Christian life. Looking at James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, once referenced what he called the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history, a phenomena that applies to Christians as well. And what is this phenomena? When it was hard to be a Jew, Sachs wrote, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time, reports Jonathan Sachs. It holds true to our Christian faith as well. When it's hard to be a Christian, people stay Christian. When it's easy to be a Christian, people stop being Christian. You see, suffering and difficulty, hardship, develops perseverance that ability to hang in there. Number two, pain and suffering, God uses that to bring maturity. That's number two. It brings maturity. We're looking at verse four of James chapter one. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Your hard times, the winds that you experience develop maturity in your life. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and the success achieved. Only through the experience of trial and suffering. Number three. Pain and suffering assures us of our sonship. This comes from Romans chapter 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Suffering and difficulty assures us of our sonship. In her book, Because He Loves, how Christ transforms our daily life, author Elsie Fitzpatrick writes these words, and listen to these words. Just in case you're unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by the new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior. The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they have taken the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity that you weren't born with 
or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you were invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits that this identity brings. This is so much better than identity theft. In fact, it's actually an identity gift. Sonship, your identity is in Christ Jesus. And it seems like the winds of difficulty and suffering affirms and strengthens that realization that we belong to God. Number four, suffering and hardship prove the genuine nature of our faith. Proves the genuine nature of our faith. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Speaking of suffering and difficulty, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So difficulty and suffering proves the genuine nature of your faith. Naval officers often refer to the integrity of the hull. When a submarine comes out of dry dock, the first exercise is called a sea trial, which takes the submarine to depth in the ocean to test the integrity of the hull. Naval personnel sometimes call this phase a shakedown cruise because it measures a vessel's performance and general seaworthiness. If integrity is compromised in any way, such as a poor weld, the stress from the increased pressure of deep water will, it, will inevitably find that weakness. When you experience difficulty, when hardship steps in to your life, you're in a shakedown cruise. The depth of those difficulties are used to reveal the imperfections of your life and of your faith. Number five, suffering and hardship develops in us a humility. Humility, verse Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And this is from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Uh, God had permitted, God had allowed something to exist in his life that was difficult, that was uncomfortable, that brought pain. And this is what he says about this thorn in the flesh. He says this, To keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul says, to keep me humble, to keep me from being proud, difficulty was permitted into my life. God uses your difficulty, your hardship, to develop humility in your life. Number six, difficulty and suffering keeps us on track. This comes from Psalm 119, verse 67. Follow along as I read that particular passage. The psalmist says this, 
before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. Okay. Before I experienced any kind of difficulty or hardship, man, I did what I pleased. That's what he's saying. But then when difficulty came into my life, I straightened up. I started following God's will for my life. You see, difficulty, God permits it to come into your life to keep you on track, to keep you on track. Number seven, difficulty and suffering is permitted to deepen our insight into the heart of God, in the heart of God. In the Old Testament, we have the book of Hosea, and Hosea was instructed by God to take uh, this one individual, this woman, to take this woman as his wife. This woman was uh, considered a prostitute. She was very unfaithful to Hosea. But God would not let him give up on this woman. Why? This was an illustration. This was a story to reveal to us that even though we as people are unfaithful, God does not give up on us. You see, difficult, difficulty and suffering deepens our insight into the nature of who God really is. We may be unfaithful, but God remains faithful. We waver in our love and trust, but God continues to love and provide for us. It's in that difficulty, that tough time, that we deepen our insight of who God really is. Number eight, suffering and difficulty comes into our lives to help others. That's number eight, to help others. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. When you're in difficulty, you don't want to hear theories. You don't want to hear philosophies. You want the words of someone who's been there. Through your difficulty, you can be that someone. You can speak into somebody's life. Why? Because you have been there. So God uses difficulty and hardship so that we can minister to others. Number nine, difficulty and hardship reveal what real love is all about. Reveals what we really love. John chapter 12, verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Nothing like a trying, difficult time to get your priorities right in this life. Right? God permits difficulty. God allows hardship to come into your life so that you will get your priorities correct to reveal what is really important to you. That's number nine. And here's number ten as we come to the end. 
God uses difficulty and hardship to display God's glory. To display God's glory. The passage here that uh, refers to this and talks about this is from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is the story of Joseph's life. And you remember Joseph. Joseph, he was detested by his brothers. In fact, they wanted to kill him. But fortunately, because of God's plan, they didn't kill him. They threw him in a well. Then there comes a band of uh, uh, traitors. And so they, try, so they sell Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt and experiences other difficulty. But he's there because his brothers abandoned him. His brothers mistreated him. And when it's all said and done, said and done here's what Joseph says to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God, for reasons we don't understand, but God will permit and allow difficult situations to come into his life because it's through that difficulty God is glorified. God is glorified. They intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. I wish I could say that the sun always shines on the Christian, that the grass is always greener, and that the temperature is ideal, but that would be a lie, wouldn't it? You know that that's not true. We don't like it. In fact, we would rather run from the difficulty and suffering that sometimes comes. But for us as followers of Christ, let's remember that God uses this as a tool. Suffering and hardship is painful. But God uses it for good for those who love Him and are called to His purpose. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, once again, thank you for reminding us about how you use our difficulty, how you use our troubles, not only to develop within us those traits that are modeled in your Son, Jesus, but Lord, also to help others and ultimately to bring glory to yourself. Father, may we not forget that difficulty and hardship are just temporary, and they're tools that you use to make us better. With that in mind, Father, we step in to what it is that has come into our life, knowing that we will come out a whole lot better on the other side. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.